want you to go with me to John chapter 7. John chapter 7 and verse 53. We're going to be taking a look this morning, beginning at John 7 and verse 53 through John chapter 8 and verse 11. And as some of you have noticed this week, I've talked to you some of you about this already, some of you noticed this week as you read the text ahead of time, and I hope you're doing that. It's a, it's a tremendous privilege to have the Word before us. There have been a couple of times that I've told you this is where we're going to be, and during the week I thought, uh-oh, I might have to shorten up the passage this week, and I know I told everybody this is where we're going to be, but... I haven't had to do that yet, but, but there may be, may come that time, but, but we're putting that in the bulletin. The passage for next week is where I think we're going to be next week following this passage. And if you can read that ahead of time, at the very least, I think that's profitable that you will benefit from that. If you will take this encouragement that we're giving you to journal that, and what I mean is just write out the verses from your copy of God's Word, word for word, and leave some room for some comments, some things that come to your mind as you write out the verses. I think that will help you especially, um, even more so than just reading the passage. But at the very least, you ought to read the passage with us during the week. I hope you're doing that. So as you read the passage this week, you may have come in your copy of God's Word, in your translation, and seen there are some brackets around the text this morning. That's the way it is in the English Standard Version. I think that's the way it is in the New American Standard Bible. The New International Version, if you have any of those translations, you'll see brackets around the text or a footnote or both. And you found that our passage this week has those brackets that may have caused you, I hope it caused you to go look at the footnotes. Why are those brackets there and what what does that mean? And if you went and looked at the footnotes, you found something like this. Some manuscripts do not include chapter 7, verse 53, through chapter 8, verse 11. And then some of your footnotes probably said something like this. Maybe not all of them, but some of them probably said, uh, went on to explain that some ancient manuscripts add this passage either here, where we find it in the text, or after chapter 21, verse 25, or after Luke chapter 21 and verse 38, and wherever it's found, there are often, in the, in the ancient manuscripts where it is found, there are often variations in the wording of the text. So clearly, when you stop, when you come to this and you say, well, why the brackets? And you hear me explain this a little bit. You, you begin to realize there's some question about this passage as to whether this account really happened or whether it actually happened at the time we find it uh, uh, presented to us in the text. Whether we actually, whether it actually happened at this time, we find it in John's gospel. But at the same time, just as we stop, and you, and you might have questions about whether this text belongs here, and, and many scholars think that, they have a question about whether this text belongs here. At the same time, most scholars agree that this did occur, that this actually did take place in the ministry and the life of Jesus Christ. About this, let me share with you some comments D.A. Carson notes in his commentary. I find them very helpful. Maybe you will too. These verses, he says, are present in most of the medieval Greek minuscule manuscripts, but they are absent from virtually all early Greek manuscripts that have come down to us, representing great diversity of textual traditions. A number of later manuscripts that include the narrative, in other words, he's saying, Often this doesn't show up in the earliest, most reliable, oldest manuscripts. In later manuscripts, it starts to show up. A number of later manuscripts that include the narrative mark it off, like you see it marked off in our text, if you have 
a more modern translation, um, a, a number of the later manuscripts that include the narrative mark it off, indicating hesitation as to its authenticity, while those that do include it display a rather high frequency of textual variance. And then he goes on a little later to say there is a little there is little reason for doubting that the event here described occurred. We can trust that this happened in the life of Jesus in his ministry, even if in its written form it did not in the beginning belong to the canonical books. The narrative before us also has a number of parallels with stories in the synoptic gospels. The reason for its insertion here may have been to illustrate the point made in chapter 7 and verse 24, and we're going to talk about that this morning, and, ver- and chapter 8, verse 15, which is very similar, or conceivably to illustrate the Jews' sinfulness over against Jesus' sinlessness, that from D.A. Carson, and I'm thankful for his scholarship and the scholarship of many others. When we come to a text like this and we go, what's going on? Why is this marked out? We can go and study for ourselves and find out. So, is it likely this event took place? Yes, I think it is. Is it likely this event took place? Most scholars agree, yes. And D.A. Carson, as D.A. Carson knows, this account has a number of parallels with other stories in the Gospels. So other things we find in the Gospels closely parallel this, this, uh, this story and this situation. We should also note, and this is important, that nothing in what we find in this story, nothing that we find in this account, differs from the rest of Jesus' ministry. It doesn't contradict what Jesus teaches elsewhere. It doesn't contradict what the Bible teaches elsewhere. Very important. Now, with that noted, let's proceed. I want to look at the text this morning. Let's look at what took place, and we're going to see some parallels to Jesus' ministry elsewhere, some parallels to the Bible's teaching elsewhere that, that gives support to what we find here. Look at verse 53 in chapter 7, and follow along with me. I'm going to read our passage that we're going to look at here through uh, chapter 8, verse 11. Verse 53 in chapter 7. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, now, the, now, in, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the, women, with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now, with verse 53, we find, as one commentator notes, that we often have found, as we often have found, that when whatever contrivances our enemies have made to extinguish the gospel, 
Yet by the amazing kindness of God, it immediately fell powerless to the ground. And that's what we see happening here. Look at verse 53 in chapter 7. They went each to his own house. What's happening? Well, after the confrontation in the temple, they were trying to put hands on Jesus, right? They are trying to get him, take him, so they could kill him, be done with him. We've seen this several times now. We're going to continue to see this in John's Gospel. There had been those who were sent to put hands on Jesus to have him taken away so that they could kill him. It was kind of humorous last time we noted it as those who were supposed to get him came back. They said, where's this guy you're supposed to get? We told you to go get Jesus. Where is he? He's like, no one ever spoke like he did before. In other words, we were listening to him talk and we totally forgot we were supposed to grab him. All right? And it's kind of... We, we go, well, they were, they were empty, you know, empty-minded or they were thoughtless. No, no, God confused them, okay? And God does this again and again. It's not his time yet. It's not Jesus' time yet. It's not the appointed time. It's not the time appointed by God the Father. So no one's going to lay hands on Jesus until it's time. And that's what we see going on there in, 50, in verse 53. They went each to his own house. They all failed to, failed to put their hands on Jesus and take him away. No matter how badly these Jewish leaders want to kill Jesus, there would be no taking him before his appointed time, the time appointed by God the Father. Now, note too, as they all went to their own homes, where did Jesus go? He went up to the Mount of Olives. And then the next morning he returned to the temple and the people gathered around and he sat down to teach. And, and that, that actually is a very similar, there's a similar account to that in, in Luke chapter 21 and verses 37 and 38 where it says, And every day he was teaching in the temple... But at night he went out and lodged on the Mount, of, Mount called Olivet. They all went to their own homes. Jesus had none. He lodged at the, at the Mount called Olivet. Verse 38, and early in the morning, in Luke chapter 21, and early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Now, looking again, look again, again at verses 3 through 5, there's something about this encounter that ought to remind us, as we read this, and I noted it earlier, as we read this, it ought to remind us of something we heard from Jesus back in chapter 7. There's a very clear illustration in this account that follows closely the statement of Jesus when in John 7, and you can go back, back there and look at it with me, in John 7 and verse 24, we hear him challenge the, the Jewish religious leaders and authorities saying this in John 7 and verse 4, 24, Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Now look at verses 3 through 5 again. Thinking about that statement in verse 24, chapter 7, look at verses 3 through 5, chapter 8. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? And Jesus could have said, Judge with right judgment, which is in effect what he says here. Not in those words, in different words. We're going to continue to see this, though. There, here's this escalation of opposition against Jesus. We're going to continue to see this escalation of events and circumstances compelled by those religious leaders against Jesus that leads up to Jesus' crucifixion. As we continue in John's Gospel, the religious authorities are continually trying to get Jesus. They're trying to get him and take him and kill him and be done with him and here they're trying to catch Jesus contradicting his own teaching 
or contradicting the law of Moses. One of those two would be fine for them. They just want to see him stumble and get confused, contradict himself or the law of Moses. And, and they're looking for just anything. They're nitpicking. They're hunting for Jesus. They're just looking for something to catch him in that they might accuse him with. And John tells us in verse 6, this they said to test him. We know they're just trying to get him, right? Because, because it says here in verse 6, this they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. But note how Jesus deals with this situation. Verse 6 continues, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger in the ground. Now the question is always this. You know what the question is, right? What did he write in the ground? Right? You were thinking that when you read it this week. If you read this week, or every time you've heard this, what did Jesus write in the ground? What did he write? I don't know. Nobody knows what he wrote in the ground. The Bible doesn't tell us what he wrote in the ground. We're not told. But look at verses 7 and 8. How's that for an answer? Look at verses 7. Verse 7. And as they continued to ask him, you see, they're going, come on, answer us. But Jesus calmly kind of, you know, makes them wait, gets down, starts writing something in the dirt. And they're getting irritated by this. As they continued to ask him, he stood up, verse 7, and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. So Jesus pauses his writing. He's writing something in the ground. We don't know what. Pauses long enough. And as I read uh, Ray Stedman's comments on this passage this week, I was struck by his statement, and I'll use it this morning. Jesus stands up and he and he helps these judges find themselves guilty. <laughs> I like that. Not mine. I wish that was mine. He find he helps these judges find themselves guilty, right? And that's what he does. The point is clear. Here's the point. The point is clear. All have sinned. All have sinned. Huh, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? It is because it's a it's a Bible truth, right? And we know that from Romans 3.23 very clearly, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jesus is making a very clear challenge, putting a very clear challenge to them, making a very clear statement. If, if you think you're without sin, you go ahead and commence the stoning. And we're going to see what happens. We know what happens, right? But Romans 3.23 says, and, and this is the point Jesus is making, look, you've all sinned. Yes, you sinned, so have you. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, says Romans 3.23. This is also like a, a warning we find in 1 John chapter 1 and verses 8 through 10. And, and what we find in that passage is, is a warning to some people who say, oh wait, I'm not a sinner. What are you talking about sin? I don't sin. There's a warning to people who say that. And also there's a promise in this passage of forgiveness for those who confess their sin. Listen to 1 John 1 verses 8 through 10. If we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So Jesus pauses. He stops his writing in the dirt. He stands, and in effect he says, any of you who are without sin can start the stoning anytime now. And verse 8 says, what did he do next? And once more he bent down and wrote in the ground. Again, 
The question, what did you write in the ground? Right? You're thinking that again now. You were thinking that again. You were thinking that this week as you looked at it. What, what's he writing in the dirt? What's he writing in the ground? Well, lots of ideas about that. I like what one commentator said um, as I read this passage this week and studied it. Um, said that he may have been writing out in the dirt the recent sins of the accusers of this woman. I don't know. It's possible he was doing that. Wouldn't that have been convicting, right? Jesus gets down and starts writing out your latest sin. And you're going, what's he writing? Ooh, wipe that out. No, no, no. And the next guy, and the next guy. Maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. We don't know. We're left to guess, and we shouldn't do that too liberally, okay? And when it's not said, and we shouldn't guess too, too freely. But maybe that's what was happening. We don't know what Jesus was writing in there, but we do know this. Here's what we do know. We do know that each one who were accusing this woman of the sin that she was accused of, right? Each one who stood there and accused them, each one of them became guilty of their own sinfulness. And each one began to turn and walk away until there were no more accusers. Look at verse 9. And when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? Beginning with the older ones. You know, we kind of, as we get older, we mature and we begin to see how sinful we really are. I, 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 you know, I think that's true, but we ought not wait the world to understand how sinful we are, right? Beginning with the older ones, says verse 9, and Jesus was left alone with a woman standing before him. So now it's just Jesus and the woman. By the way, where was the man in this? Where, where was the man who was party to this sin of which she was accused? Where, where was the man in this? You know, the law, in this situation, the law required the stoning of both parties. And yet, they only brought the woman. Why, why did they only bring the woman? We don't know. But I think we can learn something from this very clearly from, from this fact that they conveniently didn't bring the man. He's brought the woman. I think it's clear that they were far more interested in trying to find an opportunity to accuse Jesus. They were far more interested in trying to find an opportunity to kill Jesus than they were about upholding the law. You know, they talked about the law. They knew the law, and they were all about upholding the law, and they were trying to catch Jesus breaking the, the commandments, right? But they were far more about killing him and being done with him and, and wiping him all, uh, out from the face of the earth than they were concerned with this law that they claimed to follow. Oh, how careful we need to be. How careful we need to be that we're not more concerned with other people's sins than we are our own. And we often do that, don't we? And it's easy to do that. We can sit and we can watch what's going on in this world and we go, that guy, that guy ought to get severely punished. Right? (laughs) What about us? What about us who are also sinners? Right? Look at verses 10 and 11. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. Probably astonished, looking around. No one, Lord. Has no one condemned you? No one, Lord. And and Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Boy, no sweeter words have been spoken. Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. You see, earlier, the judges of this woman had found themselves guilty, right? Now, 
Again, as Ray Stedman points out, commenting on this text, the guilty woman finds herself forgiven. Isn't that precious? Here's this guilty, she's guilty. Here's this guilty woman accused of adultery. The, the men who have accused her or brought her to Jesus, they're searching, they're trying to find Jesus to accuse him with. And Jesus turns the tables on them. And they're convicted in their sin and all leave. And here's this woman whom Jesus confronts and turns to and graciously and gently and lovingly says, neither do I condemn you. But here's, here's an important, a very important statement. And from now on, sin no more. You see, those judges had found themselves guilty and now she finds herself forgiven. And, and what a wonderful place to be, forgiven. What a wonderful place to be, guilty and yet not punished, forgiven. Note that Jesus does not condone adultery. Some argue when they talk about whether this passage belongs in John here, some argue it almost seems like Jesus condones adultery. Does Jesus condone adultery? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. Go and sin no more, right? He is not condoning adultery. He does not condone adultery. Far from it, right? And we, and we know from Jesus' teaching he does not do that. But note something else. He doesn't condemn her. He doesn't condemn her. You see, Jesus... Jesus came to die for our sins, to take the punishment that we deserve. And God's word is very clear. God hates what? God hates sin. He doesn't hate the one who sins. Very important distinction for us. Jesus doesn't show condemnation to this woman. Jesus doesn't condemn. He, he shows her mercy. He shows her grace he doesn't condemn her he doesn't condone what she's done certainly not but he doesn't condemn her we saw this truth clearly back in john chapter 3 jesus says in john chapter 3 verses 17 and 18 for god did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him whoever believes in him is not condemned but whoever does not believe, and here's where the condemnation comes in, for those who do not believe, whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Jesus doesn't condemn. Those who do not believe in him are condemned already. They are condemned in their own sin. But those who believe in him those who put their hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, those who confess their sins and receive the forgiveness that's freely theirs through Jesus Christ, through Jesus Christ, they're forgiven. They're not condemned. They are, they are saved through Christ. Now note that Jesus doesn't ask the woman if she's guilty. He knows her heart, right? He knows her heart. He knows her condition. And it's pretty clear that she is guilty of what she's accused when he says, go and from now on sin no more. Or as the NIV puts it, go now and leave your life of sin. I think that's a good, a good translation. Go now and leave your life of sin. That's what's supposed to happen in our lives as we come to Christ. You see, that's, that's what we're capable of 
when we repent of sin and believe in Jesus Christ because the Holy Spirit moves into us and gives, gives us God's power to help us overcome sin and to leave a life of sin. doesn't mean we, we're done sinning. doesn't mean we quit sinning. But it means we leave the patterns of sin behind. And we're done with those patterns of sin because, because we've repented of sin, we've turned from those, and we've turned to trust and dependence in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, go and from now on sin no more. Or go now and leave your life of sin. There's something else here that's clear. Jesus has the authority for, to forgive sin. You realize that? Jesus has the authority to forgive sin. Who is Jesus? God incarnate, right? God in human flesh. He has the authority to forgive sin. Praise God. That truth is made very clear in Matthew's gospel when Jesus heals the paralytic passage you're probably very familiar with. We find this exchange in Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 9 and verses 1 through 7. Listen. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, and note this, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of God has authority on earth to forgive sins? He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and he went home. There's an important statement in that passage. Think about this. What's more important, physical healing or spiritual healing? Can Jesus heal physically? Absolutely. He does. We see him in the Gospels heal physically. But what's more important? He addresses this man's most important need, and it's spiritual healing, isn't it? And Jesus, we learned this in our passage today, Jesus has the power to forgive sins. So here in John 8, we find Jesus, God incarnate, dealing graciously, compassionately with this woman caught in adultery. And he forgives sin because he came not into the world, condemned the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And he does so so that those who are saved may go on and leave their life of sin. You see, if you're Christ and Christ is in you through the Holy Spirit, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, you've left your life of sin. You may still still deal with sin. We're all going to deal with sin this side of heaven, right? Oh, me. Not amen. Oh, me, right? Oh, me. That we still deal with sin, right? But have we left the life of sin? Have we, have we gone away from our old life to sin no more? Not that we're sinless, but that we're leaving the patterns of sin behind. You see, as we become more and more like Christ, the patterns of sin should be get dimmer and dimmer in our past. And we should sin less and less and live more like Christ. Because Christ is in us. His Spirit is changing us. His Spirit is working in us, making us like Him. You know, in one way, it was a tragic scene that day. It was a tragic scene that day. The tragedy was this. That this woman and her accusers, they came before Jesus. They brought her before Jesus. And this woman's accusers had come to believe that some kinds of sin 
were worse than others. In fact, they came to believe that that sins that were obvious were more serious than sins that were hidden, like their own. That's tragic. And we ought not find ourselves there that we point a finger and say, your obvious sin is worse than my hidden sin. In his book, Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis addresses this weakness, this, this failure among many to think that obvious sins are greater than those hidden in our own hearts. He writes, If anyone thinks that Christians regard unchastity, that's sexual sin, regard unchastity as the supreme vice, he is quite wrong. The sins of the flesh are bad, but they are the least bad of all sins. All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. The pleasure of putting other people in the wrong, of bossing and patronizing and spoiling sport and backbiting, the pleasures of power, of hatred. For there are two things inside of me. They are the animal self and the diabolical self, and the diabolical self is the worst of the two. That is why a cold, self-righteous person who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. But of course, it's better to be neither. I wonder, as we read the text before us today, where do you find yourself in this story? Are you one of the accusers? Are you one of the ones who brought this woman before Christ, accusing her, totally forgetting about the sin that's hidden in your heart? Or are you the accused? Are you the guilty one? Accused before Christ, but graciously forgiven. Which one are you this morning? Saved through Christ? Condemned by your own sin? You don't have to be the latter. You are condemned by your own sin until you put your hope in Christ, until you put your trust in Jesus Christ, until you believe in Him and repent of your sin, and then you are saved through Him. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You for these precious words we hear this morning in the text before us. When Jesus says, neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. And there's hope for those who hope in Christ. There's promise for those who rest on God's promises. That Jesus Christ saves and saves to the uttermost. We are no longer condemned because of our sin, but are made righteous in Christ, through Christ, because of Christ's righteousness, not our own. And we're not condemned 
We can go on to leave our lives of sin, to leave the patterns of sin, to be more and more like Christ as we trust in Him and hope in His Word and saturate our heart and mind and soul with the truth of the Word to be changed by the power of the Spirit within when we're Yours. Oh God, I pray, examine our hearts today. Father, I pray that if there are those in our midst who have come today and they find themselves with the accusers, still condemned by their own sin. Oh God, I pray that they lift up their hearts before you now, repent of sin and trust in Jesus Christ and him alone for salvation. God, I pray for those who are followers of Christ, who realize they're forgiven, who, who are no longer condemned. God, I pray, strengthen us, encourage us, Help us and convict us to leave the patterns of sin behind, to leave the life of sin behind, to be more, more Christ-like in attitude, thought, in speech, and conduct for God's glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.